Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It says that God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually and after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And what we understand as we get into this portion of Scripture now, where the flood has come and it has passed, and now we have the aftermath and what takes place after it, is that we're introduced, first and foremost, to a world that is very much different than the world that was prior to the flood when Noah came onto the ark. We're told that on the second day of creation, when God first set things up in order, that there were waters that were above the earth that were separated from the waters below. There had been, it is believed, a canopy of water that was over the earth that was surrounding the earth in its entirety, in its circumference. We're also told in the early days in Genesis chapter 2 that prior to the flood of Noah's day, there was no rain that had ever fallen upon the earth, that the earth was watered by a mist that came up from the ground, and that's how vegetation and plant life uh, was watered. It wasn't from rain, but it was from mist. It had never rained before. We're also told back in the chapter that we studied last week in chapter 7 that there was an underground uh, um, reserve of water. The Bible calls them fountains of the deep that in the flood they were released. And probably that was the source of the mist that was coming up and watering the earth you know, prior to it. And so the earth prior to the days uh, of Noah's flood was a much different thing than what it was afterwards. We understand that when the flood finally did come, that God supernaturally did something and he caused that water canopy to then be emptied upon the earth, something that he allowed to happen over the span of 40 days, as we're told. We're also told that he caused the fountains of the deep to gush upwards. And so it wasn't just water falling from above, but there was water coming from below as well. And it came to the point where the tops of the mountains were buried under water 15 cubits, or about 22 or 23 feet. And so the water, or the, the, the earth, was much different on the other side of the flood than what it was prior to. No longer a canopy, no longer fountains of the deep, and everything that they had known beforehand was now completely destroyed. Now, if there was a water canopy that surrounded the earth prior to the flood, then what that would do scientifically and practically is that it would make the entire world uh, just like one big giant greenhouse. It would be a, a very stabilizing um, element for the climate itself. It would um, keep out 100% of the harmful ultraviolet rays of the sun, and the earth would just be like one great big greenhouse from the North Pole all the way to the South Pole, probably one steady climate and just a completely different thing altogether. Sometimes people ask the question and they'll say, well, why is it that prior to the flood, 
the lifespan of humanity was somewhere around 900 years. And then after the flood, it was drastically reduced to somewhere over 100. And then eventually 100 kind of just became the cap. And that's where we're at today. Well, the absence of that water canopy would be a very practical reason for that. The introduction of the ultraviolet rays from the sun that previously had been blocked out, now being able to reach the surface of the earth, and now man's frame being exposed to those things, it would greatly accelerate the aging process uh, if those things were gone. Uh, also, if you had a water canopy and the earth was like a greenhouse, there was most likely a greater oxygen saturation content in the air that was breathed prior to the flood. We know that even today, if somebody sets up a greenhouse, the greenhouse has to be ventilated to the right proportion because if it's not, then the oxygen content of the atmosphere there will grow to a point where the plants starve because they need a certain amount of carbon dioxide. And so today's air that we breathe approximately 20, 21% oxygen, and the rest is nitrogen and uh, you know, some other uh, various things that we breathe in. But in those days, prior to the flood, it could have been 30%, maybe 40%, the oxygen uh, content of the air. Again, something that would contribute, at least in part, to the aging process. Man can survive in it, but it causes the faculties of the body to have to work just a little bit harder. Just like if you go to Denver, Colorado, somewhere in a higher elevation, your body has to adjust to that, you know, because the air is thinner up there in the elevations. And so we have a totally different world now that doesn't support the long lifespan that man had enjoyed prior to the coming of the flood of Noah. In the New Testament book of 2 Peter, Peter mentions this account and he talks about the difference between the old world, that is the world before the flood, and then now what would be the new world, that is what Noah finds himself waking up in on this side of the flood. And so Peter writes about this and he says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. And he's talking about, um, you know, the end times in the context of his sermon, but he mentions it. He says it this way. He says that the scoffers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this, he says, they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, the initial creation. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water. That is, that there was waters below and there were waters above in the initial earth that was created. Whereby, he says in verse 6, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So that world passed away. But the heavens and the earth which are now, that is, even in Peter's day, and even in our day today, the same earth that Peter walked upon, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the judgment, uh, the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And so Peter essentially is saying to us is that there was a completely different world pre-flood to what was post-flood. Just like there is a completely different world today than there will be after the return of Christ, when he reestablishes things the way that they're supposed to be. And so the world is drastically different. 
on the other side of the flood where Noah finds himself uh, in the whole thing. And we're told in our text in these first five verses that the method whereby God now moves the waters out of the way and removes them is that he first of all sends a wind. And so there's this massive wind that is in its current is moving the waters probably to the poles where now it is freezing. God is using different ways to clear the, the water from the world. And over a process of time, the water is removed. We're told that this process takes a period of time of about 150 days, these currents and freezing and, and all of this uh, moving of waters to the point where now the ark rests upon the top of the mountains of Ararat. And there was no doubt a massive and rapid rush of waters that was moving all over the face of the entire earth. Now, when you and I look around the world today, if you've ever been out west or if you've ever even just driven on a local highway where you've seen that they've uh, blasted uh, through the rocks and through the hills and you can see a cross section of the earth that's just been cut out. Or if you've ever seen a canyon, something like the Grand Canyon or Watkins Glen or, you know, some of these places, you can see the effect that these rushing waters would have over this period of time just laying down layers of sediment and settling and everything coming back into a period or a place of uh, stability and the whole thing. And the geological layers were formed very quickly during this period of time when the waters are being removed. And the geological column, as we understand it or know it or hear of it, was formed, according to the Bible, in this time when the waters were being removed from the earth. Now, when you open up a science textbook in one of today's uh, schools or universities or libraries, the geological column is something that is used by scientists to date the earth. And so they'll look at the geological column that contains various fossils and various materials, and they will assign an age to a particular layer of the geological column, and thereby they'll make predictions concerning the age of the earth. And their hypothesis in observing the geological column is that it was formed, all of these layers of sediment, by a little bit of water that was laid out over a very long period of time. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, even billions of years. Just these things being laid down. Now what the Bible suggests is that the earth is not billions or even millions of years old, but rather it is about 6,000 years old according to the account that's given to us here. And what the Bible teaches us is not that the geological column was formed by a little bit of water over a long period of time, but rather it was formed by a lot of water in a very short period of time. And the same exact outcome was produced. It's an interesting thing that they'll take a cross-section of the geological column and they'll show you the trilobites and some of the, you know, the early, what they would call the early fish skeletons and then, you know, more uh, developed things, heavier things near the top. And they'll say, well, this is just clear evidence that the earth is very old and that this has been around for a very long time and the whole thing. The Bible says that there was no death prior to sin. There could not have been a creature that perished and was buried prior to the sin of Adam because before that there was no death upon the earth. I always find it humorous when someone presents a picture of the geological column with all of its layers and all of its fossils, 
And in a particular place, there will be the entire trunk of a tree that is fossilized through all of the layers of the geological column. They don't show you those in the textbooks. <laughs> but you can see it. Just do a Google image search on tree trunk fossilized into the geological column, and you'll see that it wasn't that just that there's these layers that were formed over a period of time. Something happened cataclysmically that caused this chaos to ensue very quickly. And the Bible gives us the answer concerning what that is in the account of Noah's flood. Another question that people ask concerning the world, the difference between the world that was and the world that is, is this big question of the dinosaurs. What happened to the dinosaurs? We know that they existed. We have fossil evidence of it. Were they on the ark? What happened to them after? When did they go extinct? Why aren't they in the world today? And people have valid questions. They just want answers concerning dinosaurs and what the Bible has to say about dinosaurs. Most likely, there were dinosaurs on the ark. Probably not the full-grown brontosaurus that you are picturing in your mind or the meat-eating T-Rex that would just decimate everything that was on uh, the ark in, in, you know, in the moment that he first got onto it. Amphibians, lizards, and even some sharks never stop growing from the time that they're born until the time that they die. That's true even today. You take a Komodo dragon, you take an alligator, you take other certain things. They grow from birth until death. Now put those same things in an environment where they can live for a 1,000 years or for 2,000 years. And you ask the question, how large can they grow in that period of time? And all of a sudden, you have understanding as to how there can be something as big as a dinosaur on the earth. And it also tells us that when Noah brought dinosaurs onto the ark, he didn't have to bring full-grown dinosaurs. He could bring infant dinosaurs, baby dinosaurs, and the species would survive. However, in the new world, after Noah got off of the ark, the world was different, and the new environment could not sustain and support the life of those species, and they went extinct, just like species go extinct in the world even that we know today. If there was an oxygen saturation change in the air, it could be that even the air itself couldn't support the lung span or the need, the oxygen need of something that large. And there are just simple, practical answers as to what happened to these creatures and why they went extinct. It could just very well be that there weren't enough animal right activists on the ark to take care of them and they weren't properly cared for and they just went extinct. Who knows? The possibilities are endless, but the Bible doesn't contradict the existence of those creatures or of their fossils. Well, the account goes on in verse 6 and it tells us now the process of Noah and how he knew to get off the ark and when to get off the ark. It says that it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent forth a raven which went to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Now, a raven is an unclean bird. It was unclean in the Old Testament. We'll see it later in the life of Abraham as something that was driven away to keep off the carcasses. In Leviticus chapter 11, God will declare that all ravens are unclean. The raven will be used as an illustration of a devourer and a destroyer throughout the Bible. God, even through the person of Christ, calling people ravening wolves. Being an illustration of the uncleanness of a raven. Well, he is the first creature let loose from the ark 
until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Then secondly, verse 8 tells us that also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him unto the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. Now the dove, in contrast to the raven, is a clean bird. And a a dove is a homing bird, so it will always return to its home unless it can make one or find one elsewhere. Well, it says that he stayed again yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so Noah knew that the waters were abated from the earth. And so she now finds an olive branch, but she still does not find material or place to build a home, so she returns to the ark. And then it says in verse 11 that he stayed yet other seven days and he sent forth the dove now for the third time, which returned not again unto him anymore. And so at this point, he now knows as the dove is released for the third time and doesn't return that now the groundwaters are completely free. You say, what in the world is the story with the raven and the dove and why did Noah go through this? It's very practical, really. A raven, as an unclean bird, a carnivorous bird, would feed upon the carcasses of dead animals and it would be completely and perfectly content to dwell where the food and the meat is most abundant. And so with the releasing of the raven, Noah would know that as long as the raven doesn't return, then that means it has an ample food supply in the carcasses of that which is being cleaned out of the earth at present. Once the carcasses are gone, the raven will return because it will want to eat and it will know that the only place that it can get me is here on the ark. And so as long as there is still unclean things floating around, the raven will stay out. The dove, on the other hand, a clean bird and non-carnivorous, is a seed eater. And a dove, if he releases it, it won't stay out until it can find food and a nesting place. It will continue to come back. And so the raven and the dove, just simple, practical means of Noah discerning what's going on on the ground that he can't see as of yet. If the raven stays out, there's still dead bodies floating around. The water's not gone yet. The earth's not dry. If the dove returns, there's not seed. Things aren't growing. It's time to still wait and stay on the ark. And so the raven and the dove, primarily for Noah, a means of finding out what's going on in the places that he cannot see being in the ark on the top of the mountains. Well, as the dove now doesn't return and Noah realizes that things are progressing quickly, it tells us in verse 13 that it came to pass in the 600th and first year in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and he looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. But then in the second month, on the 7 and 20th day of the month, was the earth dried. And so almost two months from when he first originally pulls off the covering and sees that the ground is dry, he waits about two months longer. And then it tells us in verse 15 that God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with thee, Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of cattle 
or fowl and cattle and of every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every fowl and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. And so the total time that Noah was on the ark from the beginning to the end was about a year and 10 days that Noah now has been on this ship waiting for the time when he would now come off. It's interesting to me that there are three things that Noah is waiting for before he comes off the ark. First of all, the indication that would come to him from his natural process of reasoning. That is the dove and the raven and what he would observe through their uh, flying patterns and migration patterns and whatnot. The second thing that Noah waited for was the timing to be correct. He waited two months, even after he realized that it was possible for him to get off. There was something still not quite ready for him yet, and so he waited until the third thing came, which was the command or the word of God to come to him, giving him clear direction that it is now time for him to move into the next portion of his life. And Noah didn't move until all three of those things came together. The practical was right, the timing was right, and now the word of God came that gave him the go-ahead and the direction to go. And so Noah receives confirmation, he receives instruction, he obeys the word of God, and he now emerges from the ark. And then it tells us the first things that happened, the first event of Noah, now off the ark in the new world, that him, his sons, and their wives will repopulate. It says that Noah built an altar unto the Lord and he took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. This is the first mention of an altar in the Bible and in the book of Genesis. And the altar was a symbol of worship and a symbol of sacrifice. God had given to Adam and to his descendants the rite of blood sacrifice that would be to them a place of righteousness, a place of offering, a place of cleansing and atonement and fellowship with God. It was a principle that had been established beforehand. And now for the first time, an altar being built is a symbol that connects itself to the relationship between fallen man and a holy God. And it's something that will rear up all the way up until the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the fulfillment of what every altar represents within the Bible. The burnt offering was distinct from the other offerings that were offered to God. We read in the Bible about sin offerings, which is just an offering for a sin that's committed. We read about a trespass offering, which is about a sin that is a little bit more on purpose and a little bit more uh, flagrantly disobedient. And there was a different offering for the trespass, the purposeful sin. We read about the fellowship offering and the peace offering. We also read about the burnt offering, and it was a little bit different than all the others. There were three things that marked the burnt offering and what, it, uh, and what it was to be and what it was to represent. The burnt offering was to be offered by the priest, and the three things that marked the burnt offering is that the fire of the burnt offering was never to go out. It was to be a perpetual fire that burned morning and evening. The evidence of it, the smell of it, was always to be present. The second thing that marked the burnt offering is that the priest that would offer the burnt offering would change his clothing in the middle of the ritual. He would put off the garments that he was wearing 
And he would put on new garments, and those would be his afterwards. And then the third thing that marked the burnt offering is that he would take the ashes that remained from the sacrifice. He would bring them away from the altar, and he would sprinkle them then, the remains, in what the Bible just simply calls a clean place. It doesn't give any specific place. It just says in a clean place is where those ashes are to be brought. And what the burnt offering represents in the Bible is the sacrifice of my life being laid down and offered completely to God. Romans chapter 12 describes it by saying that we, God's people, are to bring ourselves as a living sacrifice, living and yet sacrificed, given to God. And we're called holy and acceptable because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that that is our reasonable service. That that's the way that we're to give ourselves to God. That's what the burnt offering represented. The offering of my life unto him. And when I bring my life to God in absolute and complete surrender, the fire of that offering is to be perpetually burning within my life. The aroma and the scent of that sacrifice is to be ever carried with me morning and evening that I belong completely to God. The terms of that sacrifice is that it comes with the changing of garments. I'm to put off, as Paul said, the old man, which is defiled and is unholy at enmity with God. And then I'm to put on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. There's a change in my life on the other side of the offering of myself completely to him. And that thirdly, now the remains, what remains of me, the part that lives on even after the offering is made is to exist in a clean place. The ashes, what's left over of my life, is not to be any longer in the defilement of the old, but now living in the clean and cleanliness of the new, the pure life, the holy life. And thus the first thing that Noah does when he comes off of the ark, seeing what sin is and what sin does, and having seen what sin did to the world that once was and coming off in one that's brand new, The first thing he does is he consecrates his life completely to God. Lord, I belong to you wholly. I am yours, everything that I am. And so he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And it says that the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. The burnt offering of Noah is now responded to by God with an oath and a declaration that even though evil still exists in the hearts of mankind, I will forbear. I will demonstrate patience and restraint, and I will not again judge the earth with the waters of a flood. Now, judgment will come upon the earth again. But until the judgment of the last day, which will be different from the judgment of Noah's day, God declares that he will be patient with men and he will wait and give space for repentance. And then in closing of the chapter, God declares this. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so the institution of what we know to be seasons, which did not exist prior to the flood when the water canopy existed, around the earth. Now God says there will be seasons. Now it's interesting. We know from satellite photographs, from the advancement of scientific understandings, that the earth exists and the earth is actually tilted or 
rotating on a 23 and a half degree angle of its axis. And so the Earth isn't upright in its place in its orbit, but rather it's tilted slightly. And that 23 and a half degree tilt is the reason why scientifically we have seasons as God ordained them. The direct rays of the sun hitting the southern hemisphere in the winter months, and thus it's their summer. And then on the other side, as the earth makes its revolution around the sun, when the earth rotates on that 23 and a half degrees, the direct rays of the sun hit the northern hemispheres in the months that are our summer. And thus the wind currents and the air temperature change and what that causes, all of that making the seasons what they are, all of it instituted, ordained by God in the creation and now exposed on the other side of the flood. And God said those seasons will be as long as the earth remains. So that means we shouldn't be praying, Lord, please end this cursed winter, (laughs) because we're praying contrary to what he said is going to happen And we're all feeling the effects of it. Uh, Noah had to get a sweater for the first time in his life in the whole thing. Now, the record that's before us in Genesis chapter 8 is a record of historical fact. This is what happened after the flood came upon the world. And these are the events that led Noah to land and then exit the ark and then take up life on the other side of it. And so it's a historical record in the content that's laid before us. But the New Testament tells us that as much as this is a historical account of events that actually took place, it's also a figure. It's a parable. There's a lesson. There's a spiritual application to the things that are contained in this chapter that pertain and apply directly to you and I as New Testament believers. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3 Verses 18 and on. He says, For Christ also has once offered for sins the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit. That's the gospel. Jesus went to the cross, he rose again, and thus we live. By which the same Spirit, verse 19, also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was preparing, wherein a few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now listen, verse 21, he says this. The like figure. In other words, Noah's account, God's play, God's script, in bringing Noah through the flood judgment was a figure. It's a parable. There's a, there's a further application, a deeper meaning to those things, though they actually took place. He says, the like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, Noah's flood, sin being judged, wrath being poured out on the world for sin, and yet Noah, a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, is spared because he went through the door of the side of the ark that God had made for him there, where he was safely tucked inside while the world was fully immersed in water, Noah was preserved 
And he came out on the other side in a new world as a new creature, as it were. And what Peter is telling us is that just as it happened to Noah, sin being judged, Noah through the door, preserved on the ark, alive on the other side, that that's a perfect picture in parallel of what happens to the believer when they're baptized into Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is guilty before God, and thus every one of us is entitled to the wrath and punishment of God for our sins. That's the way that we're born into this world. But because of God's mercy and grace, God has provided a door through the person of Jesus Christ. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the door. If any man will enter by me, he will come in and go out and find pasture and he will be saved. And so God provided a door of salvation through Jesus Christ, wherein now a sinner by grace can come into the ark of God's salvation. And when we are baptized through our profession of faith, we go under the water and our sin is judged on Christ. He absorbs the wrath and the punishment and we are crucified with him as we go under the water. But as we come up out of the water, we live no longer in the life of the old, but our sins being placed upon the person of Christ, we now come up out of the water in a new world as new creatures in Christ. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And thus, in Christ, the ark account becomes a picture of our life. Now, what's amazing to me is that as we look at Genesis chapter 8 and we see what happened in the days immediately following the flood, there's an amazing layover to what happens to you and I once we come to Christ and now we're in the Father and in the Son and we're in this thing we call the Christian life. You look at what happened to Noah in those days and it's the same exact thing that God does spiritually in our lives now that we have risen again in Christ and come up out of the waters of baptism. You say, well, what are they? What do we see in this chapter here before us that we also experience in a spiritual and invisible way? Well, first of all, just like Noah had to become acclimated with a whole new world, so also do we. We come to Jesus Christ and we're saved, we're born again. And we know at the moment we profess Christ as the Lord that something has changed, something is different. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in a whole new world. Our eyes are opened. The word of God makes sense. The person of God is near. The peace of God enters into our hearts and our minds and our life. We see life in the world for what it is. We see our sins in the context of what they were. We understand that our destiny is something altogether different than what it once was prior to our coming to Christ. And everything changes in an instant. We're new creations. We're new creatures. We're born into this thing called the church, which was once weird and strange, but now we find ourselves more at home there than we do anywhere else. And it seems like the environment of all the world is totally different. We recognize on the first day that everything is about to change. Our relationships are going to change. Our routines and habits are going to change. Our affections are going to change. The way that we're wired and the way that we think is going to change. Everything is about to change. It's never going to be what it was before the flood again, now that I know Jesus Christ. 
And I begin to adjust now to the realization that I'm a new creature. Everything is new. Nothing is ever going to be what it once was before. And just like Noah, we do the same thing spiritually. The second thing that happens to us that also happened to Noah is that Noah had to learn to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. There was a raven on the ark, a black, unclean bird, that if left on the ark would ultimately destroy everything good that was on the ark because that was the only way it would be satisfied. And he realized that the, the raven needed to be cast out. The unclean bird that represents our flesh in the Bible and the uncleanness of it needs to be cast out of the ark and allowed to go. Why? Because the flesh will be satisfied with anything and it will destroy that which is holy and right. And Noah cast out the raven just as you and I are called to cast off the works of the flesh. I am crucified with Christ, Paul would say to the Galatian church. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says we now put off the works of the flesh, covetousness, uncleanness, fornication, thefts, adulteries, murders, drunkenness, revelries. We put those things off. We throw them out of the window as God has given us place to because we know if they abide with us still, they'll destroy everything good that's on the inside. He threw out the raven, but he also took in the dove. Did you catch that? Did you see that he did that? Read it again back in Genesis chapter 8, verse 9. It says that he put forth his hand at the end of the verse, and he took her and he pulled her in unto him into the ark. The thing that was clean. Interesting, isn't it? What does the dove represent in the Bible? Anyone shout it out? The Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of God descended like a dove upon Jesus when he was, you know, baptized and and said, the voice came and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The dove, a picture of the Holy Spirit, that which is new and right and real and holy. The Spirit that will feed upon things that are lasting, the seed of the Word of God. The spirit that is homing, that will always point towards home, the right home, the right place. And no one knew that's what I need in my house now. Out with the unclean and in with the clean. The third thing that Noah had to do, that he did, that we also do in this new life, in this new birth, is he needed to learn how to discern the will and the leading and the direction of God. He needed to know when to step and where to move and how to do it. And he did it by three things, as we've already said. Natural processes, just the practical things of the raven and the dove helping me understand what I'm supposed to do, when I'm supposed to do it. Second of all, waiting on the right timing. When is it time for me to move? And then third of all, the word of God that would come and give specific direction about what he's to do. And when you and I are born again, it's not just that we're saved and then God sets us into this new life and says, okay, go figure it out but we're born into a relationship with himself. Wherein now he wants to be our Lord and our father and our friend. Wherein he wants to lead our lives. By the way, did you guys catch that thing about the Lord's Prayer? 
that, you know, they want to, in Rome, change what the Bible says, what Jesus said about the Lord's Prayer. They want to change it from when Jesus said, lead us not into temptation to do not let us fall into temptation because they feel like that kind of misrepresents the character of God as though he would lead us into some kind of destruction. And, you know, they want to change that whole thing. I have a problem with that. First of all, because the word lead is used in the original language. It's the word that Jesus said when he said, lead us not into temptation. And I don't think you're supposed to mess with the words that Jesus said. Second of all, the word fall, do not let us fall into temptation, is not in the original language, which means you're now putting words in Jesus' mouth that he did not say. You say, well, what about the point that he's trying to make? We kind of understand and we get that. Yeah, I get that. But the problem, or the solution rather, is not to change the sentence, but it's to read it like it says it. I mean, what does it say? It says, lead us not into temptation, right? It's not one prayer asking that we not be led into temptation. It's two prayers asking two different things. It's first of all, lead us. God, lead us. It's something that he says he'll do. He's a shepherd. He leads. And then, comma, not into temptation. That's a prayer for protection. So it's two petitions. Lead us. We want God to lead us. And for protection, not into temptation. So it's two things that we're asking God. Don't mess with my Bible. (laughs) God said it the way he wants it. Leave it alone. But God wants us to be led by him. How does he lead us? He leads us through the faculties of reason that he's given to us, doesn't he? We're educated, intelligent, perceptive people. And God works through those means in order to lead us sometimes. The dove, the raven, one will go and stay out, one will come back, and I'll figure it out. God also leads us with timing. Did you catch that it was two months, the ground was dry, and Noah waited two months, even though he could have gotten off the ark? There was a timing factor involved in the leading of the Lord and the timing of his exiting from the ark. Well, things seem like they're right. Everything is possible at this time, but there's still something just a little bit missing. I'm going to wait a little bit longer. And sure enough, two months after that, the word of the Lord came and specifically said to Noah, now take your sons and their wives and your wife and the animals and get off the ark. And it was, ah, peace. Now I know that this is the will of God for my life. And thus it is for you and I. We come out of the waters of baptism. We adjust to a new world. We're learning to distinguish between the clean and the unclean. And now we begin to learn how to hear his voice. We learn how to sense his leading and follow as he directs. Using what he's given, waiting on the proper time, trusting in the word that he's given to us, both in the Bible and the things that he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. And thus we learn to be led of him and to walk with him and to trust in him as he carefully leads our lives, as he promises that he will. The fourth thing that Noah does, that we also do in this new life that we're called into, is that he offers himself as a burnt offering to the Lord. He comes on the other side of it all, and he sees what happened, and he assesses it, and he says, God, I trust you, and you're worthy to possess every part of my life, and I trust you with every part of mine. And God, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to have everything get into every part of my heart. I lay down my life as a living sacrifice unto you because I trust you. And thus it is for you and I, as we look at everything that God did, Lord, you saved me from a 
horrible existence. You took me out of the miry clay and you set my feet upon a rock. You've written my name in the Lamb's book of life. You have forgiven me of things immeasurable, innumerable, that I could never even number or begin to consider and realize. You have given me gifts and a calling and a destiny. You've provided for me in ways that I can't understand or count back to you. And Lord, it's my reasonable service to give everything left of what I am, what I have, every minute of it, every resource. Lord, I lay it down at your feet. You're the Lord of my life. And it's what we're called to be and to do as his people, to trust him completely. And then finally, fifthly, Noah has to learn to trust God in spite of his own evil and grow through the various seasons that now exist. You say, what's the application in that and how that applies to you and I as believers in the New Testament era? Have you ever, in a moment of realizing your wretchedness, and I hope you realize you're wretched, I am too, thought, I can't approach to God, he's not going to hear me today. Or I've been so bad, I can't expect that God is going to be with me in the whole thing. No, 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 listen. God says that even though man is evil and the thoughts of his imaginations are evil from his youth, I have placed forbearance upon him. That's grace. And when you and I come to the cross of Jesus Christ and we trade our sins for his life, God, from that moment on, looks at us as though we were Jesus. Now, we know, and he knows, that we are not Jesus. But because of the new covenant and because of the cross, God can rightly look at us and see Jesus Christ because the price for our sin has been paid. And what God calls us to do is he calls us to trust that we're in a right standing with him, even though we're still struggling through seeing the old man put to the side. And if we allow Satan to bring condemnation into our hearts to the place where we can't go to God because we think we're not good enough to go to God, then we have depleted the whole point of the cross of Christ. Paul would say to the Galatians, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, you will never be good enough to approach God because you're good enough. We approach God because he's given us access through the cross. And that's the only way we'll ever come. And it's sufficient. It works every time. And we must stand upon grace in our approach to God. He has given forbearance to the things that still exist in our life while he works those things out and through. And he does, and he knows how. But we must stand upon grace. And therefore, we have to understand that there are seasons in the Christian life. Do you know that there are seasons in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical? What does God say? He says, as long as the earth remains, there will never cease to be summer and winter, seed time and harvest. Those four seasons will exist until the earth passes. And those things exist for you and I spiritually as well. The best times that you and I face are the spiritual summers that we go through, aren't they? When the sky is bright and everything is blossomed and the smells are there and it's just everything is easy. The days are long. There's lots of light. Even the nights are easy in the summertime. Everything is great. 
And we have spiritual summers when we're just like, Lord, your presence is so real. It's so tangible. I can smell you. I can see you. I'm alive. I feel vitamin D spiritually coursing through my body. Lord, you're so close. I love you, Lord. But then the summer folds into the fall and we watch the leaves of our life start to wither and dry up and the colors start to turn a little bit and we get a little nervous. We say, well, things aren't quite as fresh as they were. They're pretty. Man, I'm doing pretty good. But what's coming? What's that little chill I feel in the air? And pretty soon the spiritual winter comes and the leaves fall off of our trees and all of a sudden the light seems to fade and the nights are very long. And his voice seems very distant and very obscure, and things are very cold. We're cold spiritually. And we can begin to wonder, and we can say, well, where are you, God? Where did you go? Where is your presence? I read your word, but I get no comfort in it. I don't get any application. Where have you gone? What has happened to me? And we begin to panic, and we think, what's happening? We look at our lives, and we realize, we look at it, and we see barrenness. And by all appearances, there's no difference between a living tree and a dead tree in the wintertime. Am I even alive, we wonder. And we panic and we... (sighs) But then winter passes because it always passes. And we find that the roots have gone down deeper and they're drawing from the nourishing places way beneath the surface. And as the winter folds into spring and the light begins to come and the air begins to warm and the sap begins to flow again through the veins of our life, Our spirits become uplifted and we breathe and we say, Lord, thank you that I'm not dead. (laughs) And new fruit begins to come and new avenues of growth and there's new revelation in his word. And he's got new battles for us to fight and new territory for us to take. And new things of himself that we're to discover and there's heights for us to see from that we can see further and understand better. And we think, this is what it's all about. And then summer comes around again. And we think, now I've arrived until the fall comes. And why do I go through the, 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 you know, the labor of, of, of... Because haven't you gone through that? Maybe you're here even tonight. And you think, where is God? He was. I was. What did I do? Did I send myself right out of his presence? Where are you, God? But no, it's seasons. And we go through seasons in the faith where God develops and and works in us. And eventually, thank God, we come to the point that we realize, okay, there's seasons in this thing and we don't panic every time a winter rolls around. We understand that God is with us even in the winter. And we learn to appreciate what he's doing in those times. And so the passage in Genesis chapter 8, a paradigm, a parallel, a figure of the things that we grow through and we learn in in the life that we live. As the musicians come, we close the service tonight. Jude, the apostle, says in his epistle, he says that this faith that you and I are part of, that it is the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. In other words, the same relationship that Noah had with God is the relationship that you and I have with God. The same God that Noah served is the God that we serve. There is no difference between the two. And his ways in Noah's day are the same as his ways now. And the same path and same salvation that we read of in Genesis 8 is the salvation that you and I enjoy even now. 
And what we need to understand and realize tonight is that if you are in Jesus Christ here tonight, you have been separated from the old world. You're no longer a citizen of what was. You're no longer a part of the sinful, unclean world that's under judgment and is at enmity with God. You also must recognize that we have been called to cast out the unclean and to take to ourselves that which is clean. We must also learn, as those that belong to him, to walk with him, to be led by him, to trust in him, to wait on his timing and allow him to give us direction for our lives. And we must learn to surrender our entire self to his person, his purpose, and his will for us. Burnt offerings, a change of clothes, the ashes sprinkled in a clean place. And we must learn to trust him in each season that we go through, no matter what happens in those seasons, knowing that he is faithful and that he'll finish what he began in us. And so I encourage you tonight, Christian, who's been baptized and who's walking with Jesus Christ, you might be in a place tonight that you're tempted to go back to walk no more with him, like it says many of the disciples did once it got hard. There's no life in the old. It's all under a curse and under the judgment of God. Don't go back. God will finish what he started in you. I encourage you tonight, if there's uncleanness in your life, cast it out. It's worth it. And if you don't, it will devour everything that's good in you. Don't be disqualified. I encourage you tonight to patiently follow him. Don't jump ahead. Don't fall behind. Walk with the Lord. To trust him completely and don't lose heart. He's for us and not against us. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the things that are laid out before us. We thank you for the amazing depth with which you explain and give light and understanding to the things that we go through. And so our prayer tonight, Father, is that you would be with us that you'd be near us, that you'd help us. Be our Father, our Savior, our salvation. And Lord, wherever we are in this walk, in this path, as we await your return, or the day that we'll see you face to face, we pray that you'd continually show your faithfulness. So Lord, give to each one tonight according to the need. And we ask, Lord, that your hand would continually be with us. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen.